And we thank you that you have spoken to us through your word. We thank you that we've already heard it tonight. And we pray that as we seek to understand it and apply it to our lives, that you would indeed teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Not about you, but one of the most anxious times in all of my schoolboy days was at recess and lunch when there would be the picking of the teams. Maybe you can recall some of those stressful times. The two popular kids would be out the front, self-proclaimed captains of the respective teams, and they would each take it in turns choosing who amongst the student population would be on their team. And it was stressful if you were the captain. It was stressful. I don't know if you can remember those times that your breathing starts to shallow, your heart rate starts to rise. Uh, you don't want to look too needy or overconfident. You don't want to make too many eye contact with this look. You're just hoping against hope that you won't be picked last. Because we all long to be accepted. We don't like to feel or to be excluded. I felt for Malcolm Turnbull over the last couple of weeks, not because I'm a liberal fanboy or anything like that, but I felt for him as he was excluded, not accepted by the members of his own team and party. But whether you're a member of parliament or a member in the school playground, or even just a member in your own family, some of us know what it's like to be excluded. And even on a day like today, that's Father's Day, even in our own homes, sometimes we're not accepted. Sometimes we feel excluded. And when it comes to the family of God, sometimes we can have a fear there as well, a fear of acceptance. I know the Bible says that God is my heavenly Father, but does he really accept me? Does he really love me? Does he, does he care for me? And, and how can I know for sure on what basis might he accept me? Last week, Simeon took us to what he called the Mount Everest of the Bible, the peak, the high point of the entire Bible story. And we saw a magnificent view from the top about how we can be accepted into God's family. And it's not based on what we do or what we can contribute that God might say, yeah, I think I'll have you on my team. Nothing about that at all, but simply by his grace and our trust in him. I don't know if you remember these words from Romans chapter 3, which highlight how we are accepted. Paul says, God presented him, that's Jesus, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous, or another way, accept fully the one who has faith in Jesus. That's how we are accepted into God's family, through faith in Jesus. Now, if you've been a member of church for a lengthy period of time, that will not be new news to you. Like, of course, you know, God accepts all people from whatever background if they trust in Jesus. But as we've seen in this series, if you've read, been reading through the book of Romans, although that's pretty ordinary news for us, if you are a religious Jew at the time Paul wrote this letter, that would be shocking to hear that all you need to do to be accepted into God's family is believe in Jesus? Because they were taught by their rabbis from a very young age that to be accepted, to be included, you had to follow all the religious rules. You had to follow the Ten Commandments. You had to get circumcised if you were a male. You had to go to the temple. You had to do all the religious ceremonies. 
And then, maybe, you'll be accepted into God's family. And if you weren't even a Jew, you had no confidence that you'd be accepted into God's family unless you became a Jew first. And here Paul is saying, no, all you need to do is to have faith in Jesus. And although that was potentially shocking for a Jew to hear, Paul reminds them in Romans chapter 4 and us today that it ought not to be shocking if you know your Bible because God has always accepted people into his family, not on the basis of their religious performance, how many rules or rituals they've done, but whether they believe in him, whether they trust in him. And for Paul, there was no clearer Old Testament example of that than Father Abraham, who had many sons, had many sons, had Father Abraham. Now, Romans chapter 4 does presuppose some knowledge of the person of Abraham. So let me just quickly summarise Abraham's story in 20 seconds, hopefully. Abraham was just an ordinary guy in the book of Genesis, chapter 12, living in ancient Babylon, or what would become ancient Babylon, Uh, And then God revealed himself to this ordinary man and said, Abraham, I want you to leave your country and your family and I'm going to take you to a new country and I promise to give you a new family. I promise to bless you and then through your descendants, I'm going to reverse the curse of sin on this world and bring blessing to the entire world. Now, at the time, God made a promise to Abraham that he would have a son, and then beginning this ancestry line that would bring blessing to the world, Abraham was close to 100 years old, 99, and his wife, Sarah, was 90. I don't know how many 90-year-olds that you know that give birth to children, not many. An incredible promise that God made to him, but God kept his word, and Isaac was born. And so began the family line of Abraham that would ultimately end in the coming of Jesus to bring blessing to the world. And it's clear throughout Jewish history that Abraham was held up as this pinnacle, this righteous man who was accepted by God. But Paul wants his readers to understand on what basis was he accepted. Have a look at verse 1 again. What then can we say that Abraham, our physical ancestor, had found? If Abraham was justified, that is, accepted by God, by works, he has something to brag about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. And that last sentence, Paul is directly quoting from the book of Genesis, chapter 15, verse 6, where Abraham believed in God, And God credited or accepted his belief in him as righteousness, as that's how you rightly relate to me. That's how I accept you. And it's not simply that Abraham just believed in the idea of God. Like so many people in our world have an an idea of an all-powerful divine mind behind everything. That's not the kind of faith or belief in God that Abraham had, but a very special, a unique faith. Because this God who created everything had spoken to Abraham in a real, audible way. And when it says Abraham believed God, it's saying that he believed God's word to him. That he trusted God's promise to him. 
And on the basis of that is what God says, that's how you relate to me. You believe me when I make a promise to you and I accept that. And we're friends. You know, Abraham wasn't accepted because of anything in him. He was accepted because of his belief in God. Let me say that again. Abraham was accepted not because of anything in him, but who he believed in, God. And what follows in Romans chapter 4, Paul wants to make it very clear that Abraham's acceptance by God was well before any particular Jewish ceremony or religious ritual or performance. Come look at verse 10 again. This is where we get the seriously overused word circumcision. In what way then was it credited, that is, his acceptance? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. This was to make him the father of all who believe but are not circumcised, so that righteousness may be credited to them also. Now what is circumcision, children? Ask your parents when you go home uh, tonight if they are comfortable in answering that question for you. I won't say it tonight, but just to say that it was a particular religious ritual or ceremony that young boys had to go through that would mark them out as accepted by God. That would mark them out as people of God. And so that's why many of the Jews thought that you could only be accepted by God if you had undergone this particular religious ritual or ceremony. But Paul says here, hang on a minute, what about our father Abraham, the father of our nation? When was he accepted by God? Was it before he was circumcised or after? And what's the answer? Paul says, before he was circumcised, he was already accepted by God. Before he had done any of the what would later be known as the Jewish religious rites and ceremonies, God had already said, I accept you into my family. On what basis? On the basis that he trusted God's word to him. And in that and that alone was Abraham's acceptance. Now, in our day, some people can make the mistake in thinking that, well, maybe not circumcision in our day, but maybe something like baptism in our day is what makes you acceptable to God. Unless you can tick the box and show your baptism certificate from the minister, you're not really accepted into God's family. Or uh, unless you've been confirmed if you're baptised, you can't remember that that happened to you. You had no kind of conscious part in that. Maybe you can show your confirmation certificate and say, yes, I'm accepted by God. Or, or maybe sometimes we can think that if I come to church three out of the four weeks of the month, that's what makes me acceptable to God. But just like with Abraham, we cannot appeal to those religious performancey things to make us acceptable to God. We are acceptable to God, not based on what we do, as Paul says here, but just like Abraham, on whether we have believed and trusted in God's word to us. And God's particular word to us is, I have sent my son to die for you, to pay for your sins, to rise again, to give you new life. Do you believe that word? And if you trust in that word, that's where your acceptance can be found.
Because I'm accepted by God not because I'm a minister, not because I have a baptism certificate, not because I have a theological degree in the filing cabinet somewhere, <coughs> but because I trust that Jesus has done everything on my behalf to make me acceptable to God. That's the only basis of my acceptance and all of our acceptance. Now, what does faith, the faith of Father Abraham, and what does our faith look like? What does it mean to be a person of faith? You know, Sandy mentioned in her prayers that our new Prime Minister is a, is a man of faith. What does that actually mean? I don't know if you've read the book The God Delusion by famous atheist Richard Dawkins. He has some interesting things to say about faith. For example, he says, religious faith does not depend on rational justification. Science is evidence-based, but faith is not. You cannot be an intelligent scientific thinker and hold religious beliefs. What is he saying about faith? He's saying if you are a person of faith, you are unintelligent, ill-informed, irrational, and you cannot make any contribution to the intelligentsia of our world, which in his mindset is only the scientific field. Is that what it means to be a person of faith? You don't use your mind, you're silly, you don't think, you just blindly believe all this stuff about God without any evidence whatsoever. Sometimes that's what people accuse us of as being Christians. But I want you to see that that is far from the faith that is expressed by Abraham. And it's far from the faith that we have as Christians. Jump down to verse 17. Have a look at Abraham's faith. Verse 17. Abraham believed in God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. You see, just there you see some insight into the nature of Abraham's faith. It wasn't a blind, irrational faith. He probably knew from a child that there must be a God that created everything. He believed it was more rational that there was a divine mind behind the universe that we live in rather than just the blind chance of atoms and physics and chemistry. That there must have been something that enabled this to be the way that it is. That God brought everything into being, into existence from nothing. So he had that understanding of God, that rational understanding of God. And then he applied it to his own life. Have a look at verse 19. Abraham considered his own body to be already dead since he was about 100 years old and also considered the deadness of Sarah's womb without weakening in the faith. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what God had promised God was also able to perform. Abraham's belief or faith in God was not irrational, wasn't unreasonable. He used his mind and he considered, he thought, he meditated on, if God could bring a universe into existence from nothing, and he has spoken to me, even though I'm close to 100 years old and said, I'm going to give you a child, he goes, if God can bring a universe into existence from nothing, it's not too much of a stretch for him to give life from my almost dead body. And so his faith 
was based on reason, based on what he knew about God and his character and his power. It wasn't unintelligent or ill-informed. It'd be a little bit like me playing golf with Tiger Woods. Now, there's much about Tiger Woods' life that I'm not endorsing uh, here tonight, particularly his family relationships and things like that. But when it comes to his golf, should I listen to him if he was right there on the first tee coaching? You know, he's watched me swing and he's watched me either miss the ball or he's watched me just hit the ball and it's gone way out to the left or way out to the right, which often happens in my golf game. And he says to me, Mike, if you just adjust your swing this way, or if you just do this thing or that thing, you will hit the ball much firmer and straighter. Is it irrational for me to go to listen to him? Of course it's rational for me to listen to him. Because I know I may not listen to him in other areas of life, but when it comes to golf, he knows what he's talking about. Because he's done it already. He's won so many, he's a professional golfer. And if he says, if you try this, things might be better. I would be a fool, I would be irrational to not listen to him. And that's the kind of thinking that Abraham has with the existence of God and God's word to him. It would be completely unreasonable and irrational for Abraham to ignore the word of God when God spoke to him because of what God has done in creating life from nothing. And if Abraham's faith was rational... I want to suggest that our faith in Christ is just as reasonable and rational and intelligent. Because have a look at what Abraham says in verse 23. Not Abraham, what Paul says in verse 23. Now it was credit to him was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses, and raised for our justification. What Paul there is doing is drawing a similarity between Abraham's faith and ours. It's slightly different. Abraham believed in God's word to him. Our faith is a, a specific faith. We believe in God's word to us, specifically in the person of Jesus. God promised Abraham a family, a nation, a land. God has promised us eternal life based on what he has done for us in Jesus. And so our faith is an acceptance or a belief in what he's done for us in Jesus. And that is not irrational. I want to suggest there is even more evidence to trust in God's word to us through Christ than whatever Abraham had to trust in God's word to him. Because we live with 2,000 years of archaeology and ancient history to confirm to us that what God has, what God says to us about his son is reliable and true. Not just because we have the Bible. Some of you have been Christians for a while and have used your brain to understand whether it's worthwhile being a Christian. Does it make sense? You know that there are non-Christian writers like Josephus or Tacitus and others who talk about the existence, the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So that if you become a Christian, you're not silly, you're not stupid, you're not unintelligent, you're actually wise. And Jesus is worth believing. I used to play a song to our kids in the car or just at home, Colin Buchanan. 
a famous song. Jesus is no fairy tale. He's as real as real can be. And it's true. And there have been many fine thinkers of our world who are experts in their field and are also Christians. Uh, Here's a couple of photos of two famous Christian men. Uh, The top left-hand corner is a man by the name of Professor Francis Collins. He is the lead scientist on the Human Genome Project, trying to unravel the mystery of the human DNA code all the way back to the beginning. And he's the lead scientist on that project, and he's a Christian. He doesn't see any disconnect between the study of science and a belief in God, like Richard Dawkins would. Uh, The bottom right-hand corner is a man by the name of Professor John Popinghorn, and he is a lead scientist when it comes to quantum physics and quantum mechanics, which I have no idea what that stuff is. And if you do, you're a whole lot more intelligent than I am. But he, likewise, is a Christian. He is a man of faith, but he's not unintelligent. Uh, He uses his mind that God has given him to unravel mysteries of the universe that I have no idea what they're about. But he does so as a Christian, because he, like Abraham, is fully convinced that God is real. Now, how do you become a person of faith? What does it look like to put your faith in Jesus? What does that even mean? Well, think about it like this. Faith is the corollary to grace. Grace gives, faith receives. God gives, we receive. Grace gives, faith receives. So to put your faith in Jesus simply means this. It means saying no to trying to fill your hands with all amazing things that you think that you can say to God, look at how much I've done for you. Look at my religious performance. Uh, Look at all the stuff that I've got. Accept me. Faith says no to that. Faith empties your hands and says, God, I'm not acceptable to you, but you have said to me in your word that I can be accepted to you because of what your son Jesus has done for me. He's lived, he's died, he's risen again for me. You're offering me a gift of life. Faith says, I want it. I want to receive it. I want to trust in what you have said, not in what I can offer you. That's what it means to put your faith in Jesus. It's a bit like, I think I may have told this story before uh, about Jonah when he was really little. It was Christmas time. He was unwrapping his presents and he was filling his hand with all these amazing new toys that he got given. But what he really wanted at that particular Christmas time was the brand new shiny red Lightning McQueen car from the Disney movie. And we held it to the very end because we knew it was exciting. We'd love it. And then when he saw the red, <coughs> shiny lightning McQueen, he wanted to pick it up because that's what he really wanted and in his mind needed. But he couldn't because his hands were already full of all the other stuff that he was holding onto. To get the thing that he really needed and wanted, he had to let go of the other things and then cling to that. That's what faith in Jesus is like. So often, as I said, we fill our hands with all sorts of things that we think we need to do for God. But faith says, 
I'm letting go of that. And I want to cling to Jesus because he's done what I cannot do. And I trust in him. Now, you may not yet call yourself a person of faith. You may not be a Christian. Well, tonight you have an opportunity to become one. All you need to do is to let go of the stuff that you think you need to do to please God. Just recognise that there is, there's not enough that you can do to please God. But God doesn't want you to try and earn his favour. He's offering you a gift. And when someone offers you a gift, what you do is you either accept it or not. And this is a wonderful gift that he's offering you. Acceptance into his family, life forever with him. All you need to do is say, thank you, God, for what you're offering me. I take it. I trust in what you say to me. And if you do decide to become a Christian tonight, a person of faith, you're not unintelligent or ill-informed. You're wise. Very wise. And you can walk out of here with a new sense of joy and security that you may not have ever had before. Now, if you are a person of faith, which I guess is most of us tonight, I think Paul's word to you, my word to you, is this. Keep trusting in Christ. Which sounds very easy and a pious thing to say. Might say something deeper about how I can apply this to my life. But I can't. And you need to hear, keep trusting in Christ. Because your heart, my heart, is a bit like a boomerang it quickly returns its focus back to itself. Where we think that we need to do something to be right with God. I need to do something that makes God smile on me so that I can be acceptable to him. Even if we know that that's not true, we keep falling into that pattern. Or is it just me? I'm sure that many of you have felt that as well. And so often you feel guilty, often you have questions, and you have doubts. Does God really care for me? Does God really love me? I know that I'm a person of faith, but I don't have enough faith. Have you ever started to say things like that? I don't have enough faith. Faith is not a quantity thing. Faith is something that you have or you don't have. The power of faith is in the object of the faith, not the faith itself. The power of your faith is in Jesus, not in your faith. Faith is really nothing. Faith is just accepting what Jesus has done. So Christians, we will always have doubts. We will always have questions. When we do, the solution to those doubts and those questions, a bit like Abraham. You notice it says that Abraham did not waver in unbelief, which I take it to mean that he didn't reject God. But I don't think that means he never had any doubts. You know, a 100-year-old about to have a baby, I would have a few doubts. But it also says Abraham was strengthened in his faith. How? Because he took his eyes off his own physical circumstances and weaknesses and remembered the king who made a promise to him and he was alive. And that's the solution to our doubts as well. When we feel like we don't have enough faith, the solution is not to think about our faith, but to think about the king who has made a promise and I'm going to depend on that. There's a famous Christian man who lived in Sydney many, many years ago, a great evangelist, loved telling people about Jesus, a single man. His name is John Chapman. Some of you may have heard of him. 
And he would often have periods of doubt. Sometimes he'd wake up in the morning wondering whether it's worthwhile still to be Christian. And he'd have this dialogue with himself, and he'd talk about himself in the third person, so excuse the language. He'd wake up in the morning, filled with doubt, and he'd talk to himself. John, do you have any new evidence that Jesus did not die on the cross? No. John, do you have any new evidence that Jesus hasn't risen from the dead? No. Well then, John, get up and keep trusting in Jesus. It's surely the best thing to do. And he would. Do you see what he's doing? He's taking his eyes off his own circumstances and remembering the promise of God to him that Christ has died and risen and that is reliable. There's no new evidence to suggest that that's all a lie. So he keeps trusting in Christ. That's the same word to you. Keep trusting in Christ. God has been holding out a gracious gift of acceptance all the way from the time of Abraham to now in Australia. And the response is simply to receive it to trust it. Let's pray. Father, in the great hymn of old, it says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Father, help us to put away anything that we're holding that we think makes us acceptable to you and cling simply to your cross. The cross that says, I love you, I forgive you, I pay for your sin in full, accept this priceless gift. For some of us tonight, Father, we need to do that for the first time. We're so thankful for this precious gift. We receive it with thanksgiving and joy. And we pray for your power and strength to never let go. And for those of us who have been clinging to the cross for many years, our hearts, our eyes, our minds often get pulled in another direction, tempted to let go and to grasp after something else. Father, draw us back to the cross. Draw us back to your love expressed in your Son, that he is enough, that he has done everything that we need. But there is no wisdom, there is no power, there is no life in anything else except clinging to that empty cross. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Father.